0: I'm reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. You can find that on page 897 in your Pew Bible and page 1156 in your following Jesus Bible. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And having charge of the muddy bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Uh, If you have little ones, uh, first grade and under, who would like to go over for children's worship and nursery, you can uh, release them. If you're visiting with us, you can go with one of them to get them signed up with our volunteers as they go over for... Uh, age-appropriate sermon and holy play together. I do want to read verse 8. It's not your worship guide. Um, verse 8, uh, Jesus completes his statement. He says, For the poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me. We don't know a whole lot about Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. We only get like three stories about them in the Bible. One thing that we do know is that these three siblings were all very different from one another. And if you've got multiple kids, or if you have siblings, or if you know a family that has multiple kids, which you do, uh, this shouldn't surprise you to learn that each child is their own person. And we can see that when they are first introduced in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 3, I think it's Luke 3, Luke 10 rather, it says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. I don't have a sister, but (laughs) I'm told these moments happen from time uh, to time. These two sisters are two very different women. No kids, no two kids are ever uh, just alike. And sometimes it it even surprises you how different siblings can be. Now, in last week's text, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Mary and Martha's brother. And so today in our text, a celebration is being thrown in Jesus' honor In Lazarus's hometown they're celebrating Jesus for this remarkable thing that he's done and of course Lazarus Martha and Mary all show up And each of them shows up in their own way Each of their personalities each of their temperaments really shines In their celebration of Jesus. So look at verses 1 through 3 again Six days before the Passover Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead So they gave a dinner for him there Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Very merry, right? Here's what I love about this scene. Each sibling responds to what Jesus has done with gratitude and with love And they do it in a way that is perfectly suited to their personality, to their temperament, to their gifting, and to their experience. What's Martha doing? She's serving a meal. Because, of course, she is. If you know Martha, of course, that's what she's going to do. Mary, what does she do? She causes a scene with her extravagant devotion. Because, of course, she does. That's Mary. And Lazarus, well, you know, it's a brother of two sisters. He's just sitting at the table, right? Right? Lazarus just kind of gets outshined by his sisters in most of these stories. He seems like kind of a bit player in contrast to them. But, you know, this is how it works out sometimes. Here's what I want you to see. None of the siblings seems offended or put off or envious of the others. Martha doesn't complain that Lazarus is sitting around while she's doing all the work. Lazarus isn't embarrassed by Mary, Or trying to make excuses for her. And Mary isn't trying to make some kind of point to to look better than Martha. No, each of the siblings is comfortable honoring Jesus in a way that is natural to them while allowing their siblings to do the same. Now, somebody does complain about Mary's act of devotion, but it's not her brother or sister. And that tells us something about these siblings' relationship with each other and their relationship with Jesus And here's where that meets us. First, what would it look like for you to worship God freely in a way that reflects your personality, gifting, and experience? What would it look like for you if you worship God in a way that was perfectly suited to who you are, your temperament, your gifting, and also what you've experienced of Jesus? But then the second question is, how could you do that in that way alongside Christian brothers and sisters who are different? from you. What Lazarus and Mary and Martha do in this text is worship. They're not in church. They're not singing. But what they're doing is worship because they are all showing love and gratitude to Jesus for what he has done for them. And they each do it in their own way. What would that look like for you? To respond to what Jesus has done for you with love and gratitude in a way that is suited to who you are. I know I've told this story recently. I can't remember if it was in a sermon or a session meeting or a discipleship group or where. So if you've heard it before, I'm not really sorry. I'm just going to say it again. Nine months ago, um, we were singing a hymn in worship. And as I was listening to the words of the song, I started reflecting on the week that was past, and we dealt with some hard things. And we had seen God show up and provide for me and for my family in some ways that were very meaningful to me and to my family. And in that moment of deep, heartfelt reflection and gratitude, I felt tears coming on. And I'm not talking about a respectable tear or two. I'm talking like a thing is about to happen here that's going to be really weird and big, And um, I suppressed it. Why? Well, first of all, people, humans, we don't generally like to cry. It it makes us feel uncomfortable. So it's not bad to cry. We we just generally don't like to do it, even for good reasons. The second reason was I was standing right there. And I was concerned, well, if these people see me blubbering up here, they're going to think, what's wrong with him? What happened? What's going on there? Now, you could argue, and I think you'd be mostly right, that I'm not like a a big crier. That's not like a natural part of my temperament or personality. But in retrospect, as I've thought about that Sunday, I believe that what I did by suppressing those tears, I believe I was stifling real, meaningful, free worship. Because Jesus is worthy of my tears of gratitude. And what I did instead is uh, I didn't render him worship at all. What I did up here was done for you and because of how I was afraid you might perceive me, which Jesus talks about over and over and over in the Gospels. So I did just the opposite of worshiping freely. I did the opposite of worshiping, really. The goal is not to have everyone cry in church. That's not my point. The point is for each of us to be personally engaged with Jesus. For each of us to be actively, as we're singing the songs, as we're taking communion, as we're praying together, as we're hearing the scriptures. To be using all of those things to reflect on him. And what he has done. To be really taking this into ourselves and our experience and where we are. And then responding to Jesus with love and and gratitude, and as we do so, to add our own voice, to add our own experience to what's happening. Worshiping from the heart, worshiping with honesty. And if we're all doing that, it'll look different for each of us. But how do you do that? How do you worship with freedom? How do you simply take in the songs, the prayers, the scripture, and do business with Jesus in a way that? overflows with love and and gratitude. How do we do that? First, worshiping Jesus freely starts with vulnerability. It starts with vulnerability. So Lazarus, Martha, and Mary all demonstrated remarkable vulnerability in their relationship with Jesus, especially in the previous chapter. So if you think back on chapter 11, which we covered in part last week, we see each of them expressing great vulnerability to Jesus. Lazarus, well, he was dead. (laughs) You don't get much more vulnerable than that. I'm confident that when Lazarus gets to chapter 12, he's got nothing to prove. (laughs) His only lease on life is Jesus. Everybody knows that without Jesus, Lazarus ain't got nothing. But what about Martha and Mary? How are they vulnerable, honest with Jesus in chapter 11? I mean, they're vulnerable almost to the point of sounding blasphemous. So go back to chapter 11. We're going to jump around and just look at a couple glimpses of their vulnerability with him. Verse 21 is where we'll start. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 39 Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? These two women have no problem unburdening themselves to Jesus. They tell Jesus their concerns. They tell Jesus their fears, their anger, their doubts. But they express their faith, too. It's not all negative or you know, just pure, sad emotion. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, Martha said to to him, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. I think Martha and Mary are a good example of vulnerability. But what is vulnerability? Vulnerability doesn't mean forcing intimacy or constantly exposing your wounds to others. No, vulnerability is honest self-disclosure born of love that invites others to do the same. It's honest self-disclosure born of love that invites others to do the same. The word vulnerability in popular discourse, which is very popular right now, seems to mean bleeding in front of everyone. Vulnerability is just telling everybody how sad and angry you are and finding catharsis in expressing your pain. That's not what I'm encouraging. That's not what I'm talking about. When Mary and Martha come to Jesus and pour out their hearts, it's all relational. They express their doubts, their pain, their grief. Why? Because they know him. And he knows them. And then what does he do? He responds with self-disclosure, right? And then Mary responds with faith. So there's kind of this relational back and forth that's happening here. But in chapter 12, what do we see? We see vulnerability again. We see self-disclosure again, each of them loving Jesus and demonstrating gratitude in a way that flows out of them. And it's natural for them because, listen to this, because they had been vulnerable with their needs and complaints in chapter 11, because they invited Jesus into their mess, they were then in chapter 12 more able to freely show their love and gratitude to him. Vulnerability in a time of pain led to vulnerability in a time of provision. And all of it, though, happened in the presence of other people. Here's my point. It is foolish, foolish, foolish to expect a sense of open, free, honest, vulnerable worship on Sunday morning. If you're not being open, free, honest, and vulnerable with Jesus at other times... Gathered worship flows from the week that's past and flows into the week that's next. So if you come to worship on Sunday morning and you feel stifled, you feel dishonest, like there's some kind of friction here, or you feel disengaged in this process, I'd want you to stop and look at Monday through Saturday and ask how vulnerable are you being with the Lord on those days? How honest are you being with other Christians about your griefs? your joys, your concerns, your gratitudes, right? Because here's some real talk. I love Chris Daly. I'm glad you came back for this part, Chris. I think Chris does a very good job. But free or authentic worship doesn't happen because of a specific song choice or rhythm or tempo or style. I believe a Christian can worship freely at St. Timothy's or at Lakeshore Church or First Baptist or here My previous church, if you didn't know, on Sunday mornings, I wore flip-flops and shorts and a t-shirt and played an electric guitar. I'm very comfortable with worship looking like different things. Song lyrics do matter, right? The way you do worship does matter, but there's no technique of music. There's no mode of music that makes free worship happen. No. Worship is born out of personal engagement with the Lord and his provision. The songs and stuff, I mean, it is important, but it's not as important as this. So worship is not something you attend. It's not this activity that happens outside of you and then you enter into it. Worship is not something that you witness. No, worship is something you do. It's something that you do. It's something that I do. It's something that we do together. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they had clearly experienced Jesus' provision. They were vulnerable with Jesus, and Jesus met their need. So in response to his provision, they worshipped. So I'm actually less interested, I am interested but less interested, in what changes do we need to make in the apparatus of Sunday worship? And I'm more interested in, are you engaged with Jesus? Are you being open and honest and vulnerable with Him before you ever get to this space. Are you seeing His provision and His beauty on Monday through Saturday? Because worship doesn't happen with the flick of a switch or the flash of an exit sign. I saw that too. That was weird. No. How does worship happen? Worshiping Jesus freely takes serious reflection on what Jesus has done for us. We got to think about it. what's what's Jesus done for me. So Lazarus, Mary, Martha they very intentionally prepared for this moment. Martha had to go out and get food to prepare. Uh, Lazarus, I guess, had to brush his hair. (laughs) Mary... We don't know where she got this flask. This, this perfume was worth like a year's salary. This could be a family heirloom. Maybe she had to have a conversation with her brother and sister about whether they were fine with her breaking it over Jesus and, and anointing him. But there was thought. They were prepared to worship when they get to verse 1 of chapter 12. They're thinking, Jesus has done something so remarkable for me and for my family, something so unthinkable, so powerful, so miraculous, so loving. How can I show my love for him? They thought through how to respond To what Jesus had done. So let me pose four questions for you. This isn't a survey. This is a set of questions that you can regularly ask yourself to help you prepare for worship. You could do these on Saturday night at supper with your family. You could ask these questions to kind of Get our hearts geared toward worship. You could, when you get out of bed in the morning, you could have these on your bedside table to start a whole day of worship. These are the kinds of questions to ask yourself to be reflecting on God's provision for you. So consider these. First, when, uh, when I made myself vulnerable with God in the past, how has he responded with loving provision? So just think, when was the time I was honest with God about my need and he showed up? We did that in Sunday school this morning. And we heard about God answering prayers this week. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Another question. How has God provided for me in the past when I hadn't or couldn't express my needs, my vulnerability? I didn't even ask God for provision. I didn't ask God for help. And he still showed up. How has he provided? Third question. How has God cared for me in ways better than I could have asked for? Or perhaps he showed remarkable restraint and mercy to me we're reflecting on how he's acted in our past last how has God's faithfulness been demonstrated not only to me but also to other Christ followers throughout the ages this last one sometimes you don't see it your pain your difficulty is too great and you look at your life and you you, you think he's never showed up for me I've called out and I got nothing back. It's in that time where we have to kind of expand our vision and realize that God has cared for the ones we know and he's been faithful to his people throughout the ages. You can even look at the scriptures and see Joseph sitting in prison for years and years and years and it seems like God's forgotten him. But what happens in the end? God shows up. So if you can't see it in your own life, look at other Christ followers through the centuries and you can see... God is always faithful to care and to provide for his people, even when they're in great pain, right? From this contemplation, from this kind of thinking, comes worship. So if you want to worship freely, first, yes, be vulnerable with the Lord, unburden yourself to him, but also seriously reflect on what God has done for you and for his people throughout the centuries. But to what end? What's the point? Well, worshiping Jesus freely meets each of us at a deep, personally meaningful level. So the way that Lazarus, Martha, and Mary each engage Jesus in our text, each of their responses to Jesus, it's presented as equally acceptable. And it seems that each of them is is satisfied with the worship that they offer to Jesus. And and it kind of makes sense. You can see the trajectory of their lives, of their personality. It makes sense that at this point in the story that each of them responds in the way that it does. And here's what that demonstrates to us. Worshiping freely is not a model or a style of worship. It is worshiping in a way that expresses your personality, gifting, experience, and love in light of of Jesus' provision for you. So I'm not arguing for charismatic worship or for any particular style. I'm inviting you to worship from your heart to worship from your experiences, from your place of faith and doubt and struggle and sanctification. I'm asking you to be an active participant in what we do on Sunday morning rather than being a spectator. And while that does mean sing, it means way more than that. It means do business with God in this space. Aim to adore him, to thank him, to praise him. Have you ever actually done that? I do wonder, for those of us who grew up in church, if we've ever actually done that or if we're just doing the Sunday thing, I'm encouraging you to engage with Jesus when and where in worship have you ever felt captivated by who God was and by what he had done for you and his people. So I told you about a time when I stifled my freedom in worship and I held back my tears. So let me give you a positive example now. I love going to our denomination's quarterly Presbyterian General Assembly meetings. Every time we have these meetings, we, we worship at least once daily. And I mean the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, there's songs, there's a sermon, there's a liturgy. It's a bunch of pastors and elders and their families. We love to do this, right? It's a full worship service. Now, General Assembly is the largest of these assemblies. Uh, we had roughly 970 people in attendance in June in Denver, and as missionaries and chaplains, everybody's there. And you all heard about the tornado uh, that passed. Um, some of you have. There was a tornado that passed right over the church during our meeting. The meeting got put on hold. We had to go into hallways and basements and pray for the storm to pass. And after an hour in shelter, um, it was safe to come out. So we all gathered in the church sanctuary, and we had an impromptu time of worship for about 30 minutes. Think through that with me. We had just had an hour... Of remarkable vulnerability, with God and with each other. I don't care how big your church is or how many books you've written. When you're sitting down in a hallway, holding a thing over your head, there's no more bravado or high horses. We are all on a, on a, a flat plane together, and we prayed. And, and the pressure, the pressure was really like doors. The exit doors were flinging open on the building. It was very, very close. Um, God heard us. God kept us safe. And in response to that very present and very real provision, we worshiped God. He'd answered our prayers. We'd been vulnerable. He'd heard us, and he responded. He kept us safe, so we worshiped. So we get back to the sanctuary, and as my colleagues and friends, these pastors, chaplains, missionaries, elders, and their families, they're standing, they're singing to God with gusto. I wasn't. I was thinking. I was thinking about how God had kept us safe through the tornado. I thought about how God had kept my family safe during Hurricane Ida. I thought about Liam's health issues over the last year and how God brought us through that very faithfully. I thought about my own struggles with anxiety and worry and control. And how through all these things, God is showing me that I am helpless all the time. And he is faithful all the time. And as I was processing all of that, I sat down. Everyone else was singing, raising their hands. But I sat down, and as I listened to them sing, I heard them singing promises to me. Promises that God had made to me. And promises God had kept to me. Over and over and over and over. And as I heard them singing the song of God's faithfulness to my family, the songs moved me to tears. As I simply listened and reflected and thanked God for his care for me and my family. And I thanked him not with words, not with song. I thanked him with my tears. Again, my point is not you should cry and worship. Maybe you should but I'm not giving you a prescriptive thing that you need to do to make your worship free. I'm inviting you into a lifestyle of vulnerability with God and a regular practice of reflecting on how he's provided for you. If those two things are present alone, if you're being vulnerable with God, with your, we'll get to that other part in a second. If you're being vulnerable with God and you're reflecting on what he's done for you, I would expect that worship would be, begin bubbling up in you. It'd, be, it'd start causing a problem for you. Well, let's talk about that problem. This is a very Presbyterian question. You'll have to forgive me if you didn't grow up Presbyterian. Wouldn't it be chaos if we all gathered on Sunday morning and we were all worshiping freely? I mean, what Lazarus and Martha do in our text is pretty tame, it's pretty manageable, not too exorbitant. Let's look at the effect of Mary's worship on the room and on the people in the room. Verse 3, chapter 12. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, the house was filled. It was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary's actions here really pushed the envelope. The freedom and exorbitance of her worship literally stunk up the joint. The whole place smelled because of her worship. That smell might distract others while they're trying to spend time with Jesus. This ointment that she poured out on Jesus was worth a year's salary. I can promise you that could be a distraction to others. Do you see what she's just throwing away? The fact that she exposed her hair in public was considered lewd in first century Israel. That could be a, destruction, or a distraction. To wipe his feet with her hair, you really start to think about it. It's a little suggestive. What's going on between those two? What she did could be considered very scandalous. You know what's interesting? There's only one person distracted by our worship. Who is it? It's Judas. That's right. Listen. There are some things that shouldn't happen in worship. And there are some things that should. That's not the point of this text. While the way we worship does matter, a heart celebrating Jesus' provision creates space for others to worship Him freely too. Everybody in that building, except for Judas, had come for one reason. It's a party for Jesus. They came to celebrate Jesus. Everybody came for that reason except Judas. And if I came to celebrate Jesus today... And if you came to celebrate Jesus today because of the wonderful things that he has done for us, namely, he died for us, he loves us, and he came back from the dead for our salvation, if we both came to celebrate that same reason, if we came here with that same goal, then that means I can give you a lot of latitude in how you worship him. In fact, we were saved by Jesus so that we would worship together. How does the book end? We're all together All tongues, tribes, and nations worshiping together. And there's going to be a lot of diversity in that moment of worship. At General Assembly, well, here's here's the point. We need to figure out how to enjoy worshiping alongside someone who's very different from us and who worships in a way that we might find distracting or offensive. Right? At General Assembly, nobody came up to me and said, Hey, man, you uh, you really should have been uh, singing. While we were all singing. Or hey, why, why were you sitting down? When we were all standing up. Likewise, when we worship here. Rich, you can be, get to be my example. I'm not a big raising hands guy. The Bible actually commands us to raise our hands in worship. It commands us to. Which makes me think I need to rethink raising my hands in worship. Um, it's not really natural to me. To my temperament, my gifting, my experience, all that. But Rich likes to raise his hands. I've seen him do it. He's done it up here on the stage. before. That's why I can call him out. Uh, if Rich Cropper raises his hands in worship, which is not natural to me, it's not a distraction to me. I love Rich. I know Rich. It excites me to see him enjoying Jesus. In fact, I enjoy him being able to enjoy Jesus. You're crossing yourself. I know some of y'all do that, like the benediction. That's never like been a thing for me. It's never been that meaningful to me. I know that for some of you, you enjoy that practice. There's nothing in the scripture that tells me not to do that. And I've, I've asked people about it. I say, well, that helps me remember the centrality of the cross in all of life. Well, cool. That's great. I want all of us to thinking about the centrality of the cross. and all. So I see you do that, and I can enjoy your enjoyment of Jesus. The person in this text who was upset about Mary's worship was the one who wasn't there to celebrate and enjoy Jesus. But what did Jesus say? Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus said to Judas, Leave her alone. Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's unclear what he means by so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. There's a lot of debate about what exactly he means because she clearly spilled it all, so there's none of it being saved. Here's what we do know. Jesus is telling Judas, Mary understands me. Mary knows me, and she knows what I'm about, and you don't. Mary realizes the importance of this day While I'm still with you, she was worshiping Jesus in a way that Jesus deserved. And in community worship, what are we doing? We recognize our shared provision in Christ, and we enjoy one another's enjoyment of Jesus. I do think we should have standards for worship, biblically rooted standards for what worship should look like. But we should also aim to give one another freedom within those bounds to show our love and gratitude to Jesus. You were made for this kind of worship, this deep engagement with Jesus. Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So within the bounds of truth, of what worship should be biblically, How can you experience freer worship? Worship that is born out of a deep engagement with Christ and with his provision in your life. I see two clear ways in these two chapters. Worshiping freely takes vulnerability with Jesus and other Christians. And it takes reflection on his provision. So how can you cultivate that vulnerability in your relationship with Jesus and with other Christians? And how can you reflect daily and weekly on how he has provided for you and for all of his people through the centuries. I encourage you to chew on that, to apply it, and to aim to worship the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your provision in the cross, in your resurrection, and in so much more. Every good thing we have is was purchased for us in the cross. It's grace. We don't deserve anything but death and hell. And so anything we have as your children above that is such a blessing. And so, Lord, help us to be vulnerable with you about our pain, our needs, our concerns, our doubts, also our faith, our joy, our gratitude, our delight. May we do that today and tomorrow and every day. And may we, Lord, have eyes to see how you have provided for us and for your people. And from that place, it's our hope that we would know you, that we would worship you, that we would be moved with gratitude and affection for you, Lord Jesus. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.